Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The St. Regis Mohawk Tribe is in the process of digitizing court documents and their new law library. They're among tribes putting a priority in making important information accessible to citizens. Along the way, they say it will strengthen their justice system by making the process understandable and accountable to those it serves. St. Regis also has plans to develop an app to put their vital information at people's fingertips. We'll learn more after the news. National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. Interior Secretary Deb Holland is making history as the first Native American to serve as the U.S. Cabinet Secretary. While she's beloved in Indian country, at the National Congress of American Indians winter session, some tribal leaders report they still don't see the Interior Department as an ally. Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. In his State of Tribal Nations address on Monday, NCAI President Mark Macaro tipped his hat to President Joe Biden. Under this presidency, there are more Native Americans in the highest levels of government than ever before. From the White House, to so many agencies of government. Bernadine Acheson, Council Chair of Alaska's Kenite Indian Tribe, praises Secretary Holland. It's amazing because it sets good role models like for our, our children that you know, and grandchildren. Cheryl Andrews Maltese is Chairwoman of the Wampanoag Tribe of Gay Hetaquina. We're on the island of what we call Nopi, and everybody else knows as Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts. Andrews Maltese used to work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and has high praise for Secretary Holland. Still, she says her tribe has butted heads with the Biden administration over its 30 by 30 initiative to conserve 30% of America's land and water by 2030. Waters rose, creating our island over 10,000 years ago. So all the areas right out to what they call the continental shelf break, where it actually goes down, all that was dry land. And that has all of our living patterns and our archaeological history contained submerged underneath the water. But we're trying to protect that, and it seems to um, compete with the administration's need and desire to meet their 30 by 30 slogan. Dallas Owen is a member of the Sisseton Wapaten Oyate tribe of North and South Dakota. He says his tribe is still jumping through too many federal hoops and hurdles. I know she's probably doing the best she can, but I do I expect more? Yes. Do I, but do I, am I going to be at a loss if nothing comes to, to fruition? Probably not, because I know the position she's in, and at the end of the day, unless they cut red tape, it's just, it's yeah. just what it is. Ashley Hemmers is an enrolled member of the Fort Mojave Indian Tribe. She says part of the way tribes were able to secure protections for the sacred Aviquime National Monument was through bypassing Washington and working with other tribes first. We're very sovereign driven. So, you know, we know we wanted to protect our sacred site and, you know, we can't rely on Washington, right? For National Native News, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. The Alaska Heritage Institute has published a book on the era of indigenous slavery in Alaska that endured more than two decades after the passage of the 13th Amendment to the federal constitution, which abolished the practice two years before Alaska became part of the United States in 1867. The book is about a Haida man named Sakwa, who embarked on a courageous quest for freedom from his Clinkett owner and the trial that ultimately ended human bondage in 1886. 
Sakwa explores how slavery came to exist and persist in Alaska, despite the federal act that banned it. The book was written by journalists Jeff Landfield and Paxton Wolber, along with attorney Lee Baxter. The investigative special feature first appeared on the political news site, The Alaska Landmine, and was reprinted through SHI's Box of Knowledge series. Walber says the story of slavery in North America is incomplete without an understanding of slavery in Alaska. The book is available on the Sea Alaska Institute website. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal awarded radio show and podcast. St. Regis Mohawk citizens will soon be able to find important tribal, legal, and governmental information online. It's part of a multi phase project to digitize documents and forms and even create an app to improve the tribe's official function and transparency. St. Regis Mohawk joins a list of tribes trying to bridge the digital gap of information for tribal and non tribal members alike. The process is technically and financially challenging. It also raises questions about what information a particular tribe wants to reveal beyond its own borders. Today, we talk with people with firsthand knowledge of the work and discussions needed to improve tribal government transparency. We also look forward to your thoughts and perspectives. Are you able to access your tribe's court documents or council actions? What do you think about sharing your tribal government's legal information beyond your community? Share comments and questions by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or leave a comment on our website or social media pages. Joining us now from Aquasasne, New York, is Danielle Mayberry. She is the principal law clerk at St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Courts and a Western Shoshone Tribal Court judge. She is, in fact, Western Shoshone also. Danielle, hello and welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, everyone, and, you know, thank you for having me discuss our, you know, discuss our project and this important work. Absolutely. Joining us from Madison, Wisconsin, is Bonnie Shuka. She is Associate Dean and Director of the Law Library at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Bonnie, welcome to Native America Calling to you as well. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure. 
And also joining us from Madison is Michael Williams. He is a fellow with the Open Law Library and a student at the University of Wisconsin Law School. He's a member of the United Nation of Wisconsin. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Hello, hello. Great to be here. Great to have all of you on our show. And Danielle, I want to start with you because when I first learned about these efforts to digitize tribal law information, my first thought was, why aren't more tribes doing this? So, so please tell our listeners, what's behind the decision here with the St. Regis Mohawk? So over the last couple of years, this has been a project that's been prioritized um, by the tribal court and, um, and the general counsel's office. It's been a need identified because we have, um, you know, tribal members other and other people utilizing, you know, tribal resources or doing business with the tribe and not having any knowledge of what, you know, laws are at play here. And um, a priority at the St. Regis Mock Tribal Courts, you know, under um, Chief Judge Kerry Garo has been, you know, we are working towards um, access to justice and making our court as user-friendly as possible. And this is just a necessary step in doing so, is making sure that tribal members, um, outside lawyers, everyone can access tribal laws. Um, and at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, there's only a few places you can find our tribal laws. Um, it's, there is a tribal members portal, but oftentimes we've heard um, complaints about being able to access it. It's not user-friendly. And, you know, these are great efforts by the tribe's communications office and um, the tribe's tech support team. Um, but it's not filling the need, especially when you look um, and you realize that, okay, not just tribal members are utilizing the tribal court or entering into business with the um, with tribal members on the territory. Um, so we, there's, there has to be something more done. And then, you know, at the tribal court, we post the laws on our um, tribal webpage. But that's still, you know, those are little steps to the bigger problem. And so we have, you know, tried to get this project together um, and, you know, applied for CTAS grants and included this as um, part of our project. And then, you know, the Open Law Library, I met David Greeson at uh, the NIJA conference a few years ago. And, um, you know, it this was kind of born out of that meeting was, um, I met David, and we were looking at applying for another CTAS grant, and then realizing, you know, in my conversations with him, there's other grant opportunities through the Institute of Museum and Library Sur Services, IMLS, and, you know, it just kind of took off from there. And it is an issue with um, tribes. There's not, there's not many tribes that have published, you know, published their laws, um, and it's a need, you know, at um, this recent NIJA conference. Um, during one of my presentations, it was brought up on, you know, just in a presentation discussing legal writing, where we talk about the lack of accessibility to tribal laws and how many tribes have been working towards that and not knowing, you know, where to get the funds or uh, wanting to just know more about it. Um, so it's a definite need within the tribal court realm. All right. And, well, and tribal government services. Uh-huh. And Danielle, about how big of a project is this? I mean, are, are we talking about volumes of documents and legal papers that need to be uh, put in this online format? So actually, um, it's for the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, uh, there's, I believe it's over a thousand pages. It's not volumes. You know, there's some tribes that have, 
enacted, you know, what I would think, you know, volumes of laws. The St. Regis Mock Tribe has enacted several laws, codes, ordinances, um, but we're not looking at, you know, a million page volume. It's, you know, a little, I, I believe, and Michael would know for sure because I've sent it over to Open Law Library, but, you know, it's over a thousand pages of TCRs and the attached code regulation um, that was enacted through the TCR. Now, do you think this digital law library, will it be a popular resource? I'm interested in learning what you're hearing from tribal citizens and and how much of a demand they have for this. So that's such a good question. We have not had the opportunity to go go live with it or do a public um, meeting with tribal citizens um, about the the project. Um, That is something that we, once it's closer to being done, we will make sure there is, you know, an announcement of it and see and probably do some sort of um, survey at the tribal court assessing, you know, its usability, you know, making sure it's user-friendly and overall just seeing the satisfaction, you know, such as sharing it with our bar members um, and seeing, you know, what they think of it. But overall, I think it will improve some of, those individuals that are appearing at our court, their experience at the court. Because oftentimes, you know, sometimes we hear that a member goes through the court process and they didn't understand that, okay, that law applies, I didn't have it, you know, um, or just done, just being able to understand just the court process of being able to access, like the rules of civil procedure, for example, having that mm-hmm. on some digital um, because not everyone could come to our tribal court in person and have get copies of laws from us or access that tribal member site. So this, you know, having it online or being able to access it at one of the three kiosks um, that will be set up, you know, will be a, you know, big boost within, um, within the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe's, you know, government. Now, you mentioned... Um you know, being able to understand the laws and, and having this resource available to tribal members. And I'm also curious because, you know, reading laws is one thing. Understanding what they actually mean is something else. So will there be any support to help people with that process, just understanding and interpreting some of the information? Because some of this, I, I imagine, could be pretty heavy legalese. So, yes, it's a very complicated, as you can imagine, trying to understand, um, you know, tribal laws for just individual community members that are coming or uh, just non-lawyers, period. And, I, you know, at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, when laws are being enacted, newer ones, um, there's public comment meetings um, and, you know, in-person meetings about those tribal laws where they get the opportunity to ask questions of the general counsel's office um, and understand meanings behind, you know, um, those individual, like, sentences involved in the law. But unfortunately, like at the tribal courts, we're very unique and have to keep a neutral, you know, neutral stance and um, appear as a neutral forum for those appearing in our court. So, you know, the judges at the uh, the tribal courts of the interpretation, we're not, you know, my staff and I aren't interpreting sections for individual community members or others that are coming to the tribal court. Um, but there is that process at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe to help community members understand the law because you're absolutely right. Legalese is complicated. The law, you know, there's different interpretations of a word, for example. Um, so, it, you know, it's complicated. And uh, so those are the, 
it's very limited to, you know, those meetings um, because the tribal courts and my team, we can't, you know, be out there interpreting the law for community members or others. Now, you did mention that um, this information, it's available to both tribal members and non-tribal members. But I'm curious, non-tribal members, are, are will they have full access to all the information like tribal members? Or will there be perhaps some pieces of information that won't be available to the general public? So good question. Um, so just keeping in mind that this is the digital law library and there will be some policies, I, I would imagine, um, identified that might need to be on there but it's not going to be um, sensitive information about the St. Regis Mohawk tribe or its um, intergovernmental you know, processes. It'll be about the tribal laws. Um, so the digital law library will have the laws available for everyone to access, and, but it won't have those types of documents, those types of documents that um, the tribal, you know, the tribal government leadership has identified as only um, that must only be viewed by tribal members. That that will be only on the tribal members portal. So yes, it'll be um, available to the tribal laws itself. Will be available to non-tribal members. But keeping in mind that there are limitations to what we're including in the digital law library. We're talking now with Danielle Mayberry. She is principal law clerk at St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Courts and also a Western Shoshone Tribal Court Judge. And today we are learning about the St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Digital Law Library. Uh, it's a big project. It's all about transparency, making tribal members, allowing them access to legal documents and other government information. I'd like to hear your thoughts. What do you think of that? Does your tribe offer something similar? Let us know at 1-800-99-NATIVE. The Hawaiian Supreme Court invoked the spirit of aloha in affirming the state's strict stance on firearms. The headline-making decision highlights the unique power behind a word that has a strong traditional connection. We'll look into the cultural and legal meaning of aloha on the next Native America Calling. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are talking about the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe digitizing their law library. The tribe joins others that are working towards bridging an information and digital divide. How would you like to be able to access your tribe's laws on a website or app? Would that be cool? What kind of laws would you be most interested in reading? Maybe you want to study up. Go fight that ticket you got in tribal court. Just an idea. Let us know. 1-800-996-2848. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. Let's hear now from the founder of a nonprofit organization working with tribes to make their legal documents accessible to its citizens. 
David Grayson is the CEO of Open Law Library. I spoke to him earlier about the importance of digitizing government information. And our mission is to help governments publish their laws directly to the public. And so we work with governments to help them first collect all of their laws and codify them into a code that's organized by subject matter and has all of the amendments and repeals all applied. So you can see exactly what the law is at any particular time. And then going forward, as the law changes, we help them uh, publish and keep their code up to date so that it's always up to date. We're also starting to work with uh, courts to help them publish their opinions and making sure that they're all tied into the, the code and constitution that they're citing to. And only the largest of governments uh, are, have the capacity in-house to codify for themselves. And so most, most governments use a commercial codifier who has all the tooling that you need in order to, to do all this codification, which is there's a lot of moving parts that, have to, that all have to, to go right in order to successfully codify. When you, if you choose to go with a commercial codifier, they're going to generally try and take copyright, and they will often have terms of service that prohibit its use but for governmental purposes, personal use, and then they will try and sell that law back to the government and to the people <laughs> to make more money. Tribes have a choice to either try and codify themselves, which is very difficult, or go with a commercial codifier who had the, tech, the technology and know-how in know how to do it for them and give up control over their own laws. Or one of the reasons why we started the, the nonprofit was to ensure that that capacity was available to governments without them having to give up control of their laws. Well, Daniel, tell us a little bit more about uh, why you think this kind of work is so important and, and what does it really mean for tribes to, to digitize but also open up access to information going forward? So... I personally believe very strongly in making all official laws available to the public for, for two reasons. Um, first, the people who are governed by those laws, the citizens, the, the people passing through, they, they need to know what the law is so that they can follow it, right? Um, and so from an access to justice standpoint, from a, a due process standpoint, it's important that the people who are governed by a law be able to know that law. But from a sovereignty standpoint, from the government standpoint, it's equally important in my, in, my, in my view that the law be available to everybody because the law really is sort of the most fundamental, um, the, the, the people's voice, right? And so the, the government can only really effectuate its will, it's the people's will through the, their government by – passing laws. And if you don't then publish those laws, <laughs> then the government is, is kind of muzzled, right? And we can, governments gain a great deal of strength and power by publishing their laws. That was David Grison, the CEO of the Open Law Library, talking about the work he does with governments, including tribal governments. Let's take a call. Bernice, listening on KEYA in Belcourt, North Dakota. Good morning, Bernice. How you doing? Good morning. Um, so I'm a tribal attorney up here in North Dakota in private practice, and but I've been a tribal attorney for three tribes now, and we always have this question about 
uh, traditional law. Like even when we were putting the code into print, um, how do you access traditional law? Who's considered a valid source? And how do you incorporate that into the code and make it available for the people? So I was interested to know whether this digitization project uh, is going to include the tribe's traditional law. All right, Bernice, great question. Appreciate you calling in today. Danielle, please respond. Uh, traditional tribal laws, how do they factor into the digital libel, uh, digital legal library there at St. Regis Mohawk? So at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Court, there, uh, um, tri- St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, is that there is this um, civil code that was enacted in the, I believe, like 2005, 2007, somewhere in there, that really sets out um, the applicable laws of um, the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe. And it lays out, you know, written law, um, traditional law. And so far, the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe has enacted several, you know, written laws. um, And the tribal court often hears arguments of traditional law and specifically around, you know, our probate cases. Um, There's a lot that goes there um, that arguments are presented. And so at those times, you know, the court has allowed for those traditional law arguments. um, And currently for our project of codifying our tribal law, it has been focused on, um, our project has been just focused on codifying that, um, the written law, and it would, as David talked talked about, in so any form of amendments. So if these laws were amended to include traditional law to um, to further clarify points in our probate law or land dispute law, you know those amendments would make its way in there um, and account for the traditional law. So it's something that's you know you. Um, I think each tribe is unique. Each tribe has its different processes for adding traditional law into its modern, you know, tribal governmental um, purposes and its laws. But at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, you know, that for amendments for to include traditional law, it would have to go through a certain process. And right now, we're just focused on getting our um, written laws all codified. Thanks, Danielle. Let's broaden the discussion now with Bonnie Shuka at the University of Wisconsin Law School in Madison. And Bonnie, welcome again to the show. And um, how do you think that the St. Regis Mohawk and other tribal governments are going to be benefiting by having this legal information accessible online? Well, that's a great question. Um, And I think um, Danielle and David have already sort of alluded to a lot of what I would also share. But I think, you know, as you said, transparency, right? The, the right to know the laws by which we are governed is a fundamental right, right? So I think it's really important that citizens have access to laws, right? To protect and promote due process, equal protection and access to justice, right? Um, I think it also, access to the law also improves the ability of citizens to evaluate laws and to communicate any concerns they might have with their elected leaders. Um, Danielle's already mentioned some of the, the I think, the, the benefits for tribal leaders, judges, and attorneys, right? Having access to the law makes it easier um, and more effective and more efficient, right, to, to decide legal matters um, and for um, attorneys and judges to make decisions. 
and attorneys to effectively represent their clients. Um, but I would also add one thing that hasn't really been discussed yet was I think making tribal laws accessible also has the potential to encourage business development because um, I think if, if, a, if an individual or a company is interested in doing business with the tribe, they're going to want to know the laws by which that, that, that are subject to that uh, relationship, right? So making the laws available might encourage more businesses to, to be willing to um, do an, enter into those business relationships. Um, and I think it also helps promote a, just a, a broader understanding, right? Public access to tribal law can help under, help, you know, again, foster that broader understanding of tribal viewpoint and create a greater respect for tribal sovereignty kind of among the general public, among law students and, and uh, native attorneys who may not have as much experience or access to tribal law, but making it available can help give them um, open up kind of a, a new area of law for them. Now, Bonnie, as you sh I'm sure you know, um, you know, tribes are fall all across the spectrum here. Some tribes are, are very open and, and welcoming of sharing information. Other tribes um, have a lot of sensitivities and, and they don't like to share a lot of information. And um, I mean, what do what do we need to be aware of here with regard to you know just so many different tribal nations and um, information that uh, you know perhaps they want to withhold from the public or perhaps they want to share it? Uh, how do you go about those conversations and those discussions? I think I would reiterate a lot of what what David shared is that you know it, it really does depend on what the tribe what their unique governance structure is. What, and what their wishes are to be able to share things or not share things, right? I think some of the commercial publishers that he mentioned are kind of, they, they have one way of doing things, right? And it may not fit with the, the individual Native nation and then the way that they, their government is structured or information that they may not want to share, right? And I think um, products like the Open Law Library, the portal that they are developing, are, I think, a benefit because they can be customized, right, to whatever, you know, whatever the tribe's governance structure is, whatever information they choose to share or not to share, um, you know, and it's, and again, everything is put into the ownership and the choice of the nation to share as little or as much as they would like. And I'm just thinking of somebody, a tribal citizen who maybe has access to one of these digital law libraries. I mean, what types of laws or what types of information do you think they'll be most interested in learning about? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I can really speculate on that. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, just the laws to which they are bound, there are so many different kinds of laws. I think anything and everything, right, that an individual citizen might want to know of, you know, of their government. Now, it also opens up just a world of possibilities beyond the law. I mean, are, are there other discussions with regards to other types of transparency that tribes could share in a similar matter? Maybe financial information, maybe, you know, information from tribal council meetings and just, again, just a world of possibilities. Absolutely. Right. I, I think the, the one of the strengths, as I said, of the of the open law library system is that you can put, you can share whatever information you want to share, right? It doesn't have to just be, you know, the laws. Um, I think some of the, you know, the resolutions, the constitutions, the codes, um, and now they are, um, Open Law Library is working to um, add more tribal opinions as well, court opinions. So I think, you know, the, the, the platform is, is I think, um, dynamic enough 
that, you know, whatever information you, one would want to share, you know, that a nation would want to share, that they could probably figure out a way to do that. And, and how is this being paid for in terms of the tribes that are participating? Are there, it sounds like there are grants and other monies available to fund these projects, or are tribes paying for some of this out of pocket? I think both. Um, I think some are paying, you know, out of pocket. But um, uh, Danielle mentioned the Institute of Museum and Library Services, um, and they have been very supportive of this work. Um, they are a federal um, institute and a federal um, department. And they support libraries, right? So we, um, our UW Law Library received a grant um, from IMLS to sort of begin this initial work um, with partners, uh, a number of different partners, including um, the Open Law Library, the National uh, Indian Law Library at NARF, um, the Stockbridge-Munsee Tribe here in Wisconsin, um, and our Great Lakes Indigenous Law Center. Um, and that project, again, was funded by um, the IMLS. Um, sort of as sort of a, a the pilot project for the digitization of um, tribal laws. IMLS has also a, a separate kind of line of grants that are called Native American Library Services Enhancement Grants. Um, and those grants are designed to support and assist um, individual tribes in improving core library services for their communities. But they have expressed um, to us that they would definitely be open to um, to tribes through their libraries, um, submitting grants kind of to help them with this, with this digitization of their laws project. So that, you know, it may, it may be an avenue that people aren't as aware of, but I definitely, um, I think that is one that I would encourage uh, people to look at. And Bonnie, what's the first step? Like if a tribe uh, wants to, to look into this, is interested in pursuing a digital law library, where do they begin? What's the first conversation? I would recommend that they go to the Open Law Library, Open Law Library website, which is just openlawlib.org. Um, check out the website. You know, it, it lays out a lot of information about um, the, the project and what the Open Law Library platform offers. Um, and then there'll be a link on that page to contact us, right? And, I, and that will eventually make its way to David. Um, and David can, can reach out and give a consultation. Now, you mentioned earlier about just the awareness, spreading awareness of tribal governments and, and perhaps people that, you know, don't don't really understand how tribal governments function. Maybe they don't really understand how tribal legal codes work and other issues of that nature. And um, let's talk about those folks for a little bit, uh, non-Native folks that might access this information. Um, what do you hope they gain most from that? Um, I definitely hope that they gain a better understanding of the the place of tribal law in, in you know, kind of as, as the third sovereign, right? I mean, in law schools, you know, I can speak from experience as a law librarian in law schools. A lot of our students, law students, are introduced to federal, state, you know, local law. Tribal law doesn't, you know, for a lot of law schools, tribal law doesn't really come in, you know, to that equation, right? So I hope that project like this, by making tribal law more accessible, can help increase awareness among, you know, again, in my universe, among law students and law faculty and legal scholars and attorneys about um, that, you know, the place of tribal law and tribal sovereignty and, you know, the, and help increase respect and just awareness. 
Thanks, Bonnie. We're going to take another break here in just a short minute. When we come back, we're going to talk with Michael Williams, who is a student at the University of Wisconsin Law School. He's also a fellow with the Open Law Library. And we're going to learn a little bit more about what it actually takes to build one of these digital libraries in regard to the codification of these tribal laws. So stay with us. And if you have a question, if you have a comment, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the digitization of government records, tribal government records, let us know. Chime in here. Let's get some more calls going. Love to hear your thoughts, your perspectives. What would it mean to you to be able to just pull out your phone and uh, go to an app and pull up a, a tribal legal code, information like that at the tip of a finger? What would that mean to you? What would that mean to your family? What would it do for your community? Let us know at one 800 996-2848. We've got open phone lines here. 1-800-996-2848. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling, and there is still time to join today's conversation about digitizing law libraries. Call us, 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest, Michael Williams, is a fellow with the Open Law Library and a student at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Michael, hello again, and tell us more about your work. Hi, yeah. So I work kind of on the ground with the the laws from the tribes and the system that o Open Law Library has built to, um, we normally get the their laws in either PDF or Word document form. So if they're in PDF, we convert it to Word and then we uh, parse that Word document into um, another computer readable code called XML. And that makes it a little bit better to display on um, websites and that's all um, converted over with our system into HTML which is what the actual websites are built out of and so my work is a lot with the parsing and um, just general um, all the extra stuff that comes with the system that sounds like a lot of just very exhaustive a lot of time spent over a, a keyboard um, is there, how careful do you have to be? I mean, is there a lot of opportunity for error in this type of work? There definitely is room for error, but, um, luckily there's a lot of tools that help us, uh, like stop anything like that from happening. Our systems have their own internal checks that they have to go through before anything is published. But then even before that, um, we have to go through extra steps to actually publish the work to um, like the live site. So it takes a couple of layers before, um, before it would actually cause any problems for the public. 
Let's take another caller. Bobby, listening online in Fort Defiance, Arizona. Good morning, Bobby. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I was just wanting to make a comment that the Navajo Nation government has all of their information online. If you go to navajo-nsn.gov, under the Navajo Nation Council one, it says legislative. When you select that, you go to Office of Legislation um, Services or Legislative Services, and then on the top it says Navajo Nation Codes, and they're all listed there, all the codes. There's a little index that tells you Title I all the way down to Title 26. Um, all right. So they're all listed there, and then also on the same Navajo Nation um, webpage, you have the Judicial Branch also listed there and if you go to um the one that says judicial districts and then it has there i mean everything about the courts rules of the courts um civil procedures um abba rules of procedures uh whatever you can think of domestic violence proceedings probate, um, pro bono rules, repossession proceedings, small claims, it's all listed there. The only thing they don't they don't have currently are um any of the other uh forms, say like you want to file a small claims. They don't have that small claims online. So they usually tell people to go to DNA legal services and they can get the information from them there. But on the main website for the judicial branch, they have a lot of information there. They even have Supreme Court opinions and everything listed. Bobby, this is great information. I'm glad you called. And I want to ask you, I mean, uh, who all is accessing this information? And I'm curious, like, what kinds of laws are people most interested in learning about? Anybody can access it. It doesn't have to be a specific person. You just have to know the um, website information, which, like, for the courts, it's courts.navajo-nsn.gov. And um, and then for the legislative branch, um, it go to legislative services. There's is nnols.org. And... Anybody can pull up any any of the information, and if you're wanting um, documents from court hearings and stuff, you can go to the courts and ask them um, to either email you or uh, fax you or even just pick up in person a uh, release for public records form, and you can get all whatever case, provided it's not sealed, um, um, then you can get any of the information you need there. Bobby, really appreciate this call. Great information being shared. That's Bobby, Fort Defiance, Arizona. Navajo Nation information, legal information, all online. Michael, back to you. And uh, one thing that I've learned uh, about this show, about this topic doing this show, is that this whole process of codifying legal information um all governments, it's not just tribal governments, but all governments, municipal governments, city governments, have a need to to work with services such as the Open Law Library. And I'm curious to know, when working with a tribal legal system as opposed to maybe a city, state, or even a federal system, is the process different for the work you do? Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot as uh, 
a tribal citizen myself. Um, that's kind of what I've come to work at Open Law Library to do is to consider that and see what kind of processes we can change to make it uh, adapt better for tribal nations. But I think generally they are pretty similar. We go through the same um, kind of figuring out what laws the tribal nation wants to publish, uh, getting those laws into the right formats, and then um, presenting that in a way that the tribal nations want it to be presented. Uh, so really, um, there's a lot of similarities, but that's something that I hope to explore with my work here is to try to adapt it better for tribal nations. Now, what is it, Michael, that got you interested in this kind of work? And, and is this something that you think you'll pursue this type of legal work once you finish law school? Yeah, so it actually started with, um, as Bonnie had kind of mentioned a little bit, the uh, cases. I started with um, some research uh, collecting metadata for the Oneida Nation for their, their judiciary branch and collecting all the information of the cases and uh, creating nice summaries for them. And that connected with the Open Law Library because they are, at the same time, we're working on uh, codifying the actual laws of the, uh, the tribe so that uh, governments like or courts could access those laws. And so the work really connected because then all of those cases that I'm then summarizing also help interpret those laws and explain things to um, the public and practitioners. So I was kind of brought in on that way um, to help with the transition as we look into developing for cases and publishing those online. Um, yeah. Well, Mike, I'm also curious now, I mean, have you heard from any, I mean, you're Oneida, uh, have you heard from, from tribal citizens of other, any nations that are using uh, these digital law libraries or using services from the open law library? And have you heard of any situation where somebody was like, hey, you know what, I had, I had like I joked around earlier about a, a ticket or a, like a speeding ticket on the res or something, and somebody says, hey, you know what, I, I did have to go to tribal court, and, and I looked up uh, the law that I was having to, to reference, and I got this information, and it helped me in court. I actually advocated for myself, or actually I got myself out of a ticket or something like that. Have you heard any positive examples like that? I have not with the public yet, but I we have been seeing it with internally within like tribal governments. Um, I was just on a call this morning where um, somebody was we had released their preview site for uh, their law, so it wasn't quite public yet, but they could access it, and they were using it in their meetings to talk about the law and to cite it um, to the right places. So it's definitely um, really helping people, and it'll just take uh, more access or more awareness for um, the tribal citizens and the general public to get access to it. All right. Bonnie, same question for you. Any examples of tribal citizens anywhere that have used information they've gleaned from one of these digital law libraries to uh, to advocate for themselves in a courtroom? Yeah, I like Mike. Michael, I don't have any examples um, from members of the public, but but I would say just reiterating, you know, we have heard as well that um, tribal governments, right, have been using it sort of in their own internal processes, right, to be able to reference the laws much more quickly and efficiently than they were able to do in the past. All right. Thank you, Bonnie.
And uh, Michael, what else are, are, are you learning just doing this job, uh, codifying these legal documents like you shared? You, know, you spend a lot of time looking you know, at these, this information on a computer and just digitizing it all. What else are you learning and what are you able to apply with your, your legal training? Yeah, I, I'm really learning a lot of coding and a lot of uh, the just kind of awareness that comes with working with computer systems and within these uh, different libraries that uh, are the open law, open law platform exists with on. I'm also learning about how to engage with uh, tribal governments in, in kind of that good way so that we're making the right impressions when we're going into the communities and explaining the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to build this access to the law for the public. We're trying to increase the and um, affirm tribal sovereignty so that they can uh, practice their laws. So learning how to start those conversations um, has been another big learning step for me. Now, had you ever done coding before? I have a little bit of and in my background, I used to teach uh, programming for a pre-college or yeah, pre-college course, but I never did it professionally. Now, Michael, we've also been talking about these issues with transparency and access to information, and you know, some tribes might be more hesitant to do that. What's your thought? Yeah, I think that those issues are really important, but that the way um, because those things are accessible, like having certain laws um, not on the platform or choosing specifically what laws you want accessible to the public. That's something we work with tribal nations already to do. There's one of our partners who um, has decided that a couple of their laws are going to be off of the website. And then on that part of the website, it says you have to contact the, the tribe um, through their office to actually get access to those laws. So I think um, there's a lot of flexibility there for tribal nations to, to publish the things that they wanna publish. And, and really their, their publishing is going to uh, intersect with, or what they want to publish is going to intersect with what they want the public to have access to, because those kind of traditional laws or those things that um, are more sacred and you wanna keep keep within the nation, those you don't really want to publish anyways to the public, so they're better um, kept within the tribe. But those laws where you want the people who are coming into the tribe, coming onto the reservation or into Indian country, uh, you want them to act in accordance with those laws, the different businesses or public, uh, having those published are good so that uh, they can see them and they can be aware of them. So it kind of works out that the things that you already don't want to um, have the public have access to, it doesn't really make sense to publish them because you don't want them to follow that anyways. And Michael, what about a tribe that, that wants to do both? They want some of these records or perhaps all of their legal information digitized, but they also want to maintain hard copy uh digital or hard copy information as well, and they want that accessible to tribal members as well. Do you work with tribes who want both formats? I don't know about physical. Um, we don't like print them to my knowledge yet, but we do um, work to have them in their original format. So those original P 
PDFs and um, of the cases and the codes, we try to have those accessible on on the website right next to the the website version. All right, thank you, Michael and Danielle. I want to go back to you as we wind down the show and. Thinking again about any tribes or perhaps tribal leaders or court personnel who are listening to the show and thinking, wow, you know what? We should be doing something like that here in our community. What advice can you offer, Danielle? I would recommend, you know, like that Bonnie had, you know, spoken to is just, you know, first just looking at the types of companies you want to go to and looking at Open Law Library. Um, They are different and unique compared to the other big publishers used to codify laws um, you know, they support, you know, just data sovereignty, you know, like the tribes retain control over our own laws. And also think about, you know, what, what you want to publish. Um, like Michael went through, you know, if you have traditional laws, do you want that published? Do you want it to be available to the public? And to bring together um, those people that are most impacted by it within your tribal governments. When I've first started working on the, the application for the enhancement grant, you know, I brought in those tribal offices that are most on the ground involved with tribal laws. So at the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, that's the tribal clerk's office, um, that's general counsel's office. There's, you know, and these other offices that might be interested in one day, you know, having something available on these kiosks that we're going to get and having their documents on there as well. Um, and just thinking about, you know, why you want to over, you know, why you want to pursue this, um, and those things that we talked about, access to justice, sovereignty, transparency, um, because it does overall, you know, help help community members, tribal members, understand your tribal laws, and increases also. Um, one other element is just your legitimacy as a government. You know, as tribal governments, tribal courts, we're constantly under the microscope of state, local governments, the Supreme Court, and they, you know, they are constantly criticizing, you know, tribes for just not behaving, you know, what they think, not behaving like governments do, or they have hidden laws, you know, and just thinking about that, you know, it increases if you have access to it, your community members know, okay, this is what I am supposed to do. These are my duties as a tribal member. I'm so, you know, basic traffic law, you know, something like that, and I have access to it or, you know, and those are just things to think about. And I can, and, you know, just IDing which laws, but just overall thinking about what you want to accomplish. Danielle, thank you so much, along with our other guests, Bonnie Shuka, Michael Williams, and David Grison for an interesting conversation on digitizing legal records, tribal communities. Join us again tomorrow. We'll learn about a unique discussion taking place in Hawaii about the concept of aloha. Hope you'll tune in. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. For more than 40 years, Ramona Farms has revived ancient traditional foods, tepary beans, pinoli, polentas, and more, all from store.ramonafarms.com. Ramona Farms supports this show. Tom
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.